0: This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita.
1: Marginalia, notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material Marginalia. written in the margin Comments of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental. incidental or additional, or additional, additional to the main topic <laughs> in the margin of a book. Although Hernan Diaz's latest novel is titled Trust, the nature of trust in this novel isn't so simple. Told through four documents, trust is really four books in one— each examining a different perspective of the richest man in 1920s America. With each document, the reader comes to a greater understanding about the nature of wealth and the role it played in one man's life. I spoke with Hernan Diaz about each document, his literary style, and more. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. So without spoiling the novel, is it possible for you to give our listeners a summary of the book, or, or should I say books?
0: <laughs> it, is, it is a long string of spoilers, so it's very hard to give a, a, a spoiler-less summary, but I'll do my best. So when you open the book, the first thing you will encounter is a table of contents, because the book is made up by four different documents, I like to call them. Uh, the first one is a novel within a novel, The second one is a historical document of sorts. Uh, The third one is a memoir. And the fourth one is a personal uh, diary, a journal. And the reader is enlisted as a textual detective of sorts to figure out how all these pieces come together to tell the story of an immense American fortune, an outsized fortune. Uh, It's about the richest man in the world. It's that kind of money and the voices that have been suppressed and silenced underneath the epic myth around this quote-unquote great man.
1: So I want to talk about writing these four documents and you know the perspectives you had to assume for each. I understand from a Publishers Weekly article that the first and the last sections imitate the styles of Henry James and Virginia Woolf. Did you write these books or sections or documents in the order in which they appear?
0: Um, uh, Not really. The first section I wrote was the first section you will encounter in the book, which is the novel within the novel. And I did this because, well, I got swept away writing it. It was a pleasure to write. But also I was teaching myself what the story of the whole book was going to be. And it's all contained there, albeit in a very distorted and, you know, manipulated way. But it's all contained there. So then after that, I jump to the third section, which is written by this uh, woman who is now in her 70s. It's 1985, and she's looking back at the 30s from this vantage point. She's a very successful writer, has had a long career, but she started out as a secretary, as so many young women did back then. It was the only... A viable path into a middle-class life without marrying into it, and the book is also very concerned with that, with women entering the work space in those years, and what a radical revolution that was. And she is going through the papers of this tycoon who is now long dead and trying to reconstruct his life, and mainly the life of his wife, who has been uh, sort of excluded from this narrative. And that was the second book that I wrote thirdly i wrote the tycoon's memoir which is the historical document that i referred to and that was sort of hard to write because he is uh he's sort of a a blowhard and a you know very self-conceited and uh but it was written during the trump administration so i had you know i had a model in real life every day when um and for that i relied on memoirs written by again always in quotes great men of the time and then the third section is the most intimate one and is written by uh, the tycoon's wife Mildred and as you mentioned she has a very sort of uh, avant-garde high modernist kind of literary taste and that is reflected in her prose it's a little bit like a, a prose poem almost i thought of as i as i was writing it but it's very personal it's very intimate and if the first book starts as a, as a sort of a sweeping almost uh, sort of, it's, it's a, like a realist novel. The last book, there's a crescendo of intimacy uh, throughout the book. And you end inside the consciousness and the body even of this woman.
1: So the first document, the first novel, Bonds, it's a novel written by a fictional Harold Vaughner. And I found it remarkable that there was only, if I remember right, only like one sentence, one word of dialogue in the whole book, if you can even consider, you know, one word to be dialogue. <laughs> so can you talk to me about that? that writing style, because these were all just so different.
0: I I love the fact that you picked up on the one line of dialogue, and it is indeed one word, and it's a very important word. But uh, yes, it became a decision during the writing of the book. I always thought I would have little dialogue in this first book. There's plenty of dialogue later on, but in in that first novel within the novel. And then, you know, as I was finishing it, I decided to get rid of all the dialogue and keep only that one single word. And and it has a little bit to do with that crescendo that I mentioned a moment ago. The first book is very, it's written in this Edith Wharton, Henry James kind of like tone. It's sort of the realist novel stretched to its limit before it it, it sort of breaks out into a new thing, sort of the 20th century modern novel. So it's written in that tone. And I wanted a very sort of hovering style. A removed third person. It's very aloof. It's very distant. It's very remote. And all of this is quite deliberate. Why? Because I wanted to start there from a place of great removal so that the reader could then feel really the extreme intimacy of the final book. And I feel that with each section, we get more of that. But I wanted to start at at this sort of hovering uh, level.
1: Well, and the second document, it's an unfinished autobiography by Andrew Bevel. And it's an autobiography, but it almost seems more like fiction, doesn't it? Because it's reality bent according to Andrew Bevel's own design. And it was crafted by a ghostwriter, if you will.
0: Right. So, uh, what was of interest to me is that so many of the historical documents that we have been taught to take as the truth are, in fact, the result of ideological manipulation. Historians teach us this all the time. History is revised. The documents that are left behind are reread with a more critical eye. And now we know all the time how history has been shaped by power, by money, by political interests. And this is something that I wanted to highlight in the book, especially in the second section. Uh, each time we read a text, whatever this text may be, we enter into a contract with this text, right? There's a certain number of unspoken rules. Mm-hmm. Genre is a really good example of this. Like You accept certain things in, say, a fairy tale that you would never accept in a detective novel, you know, and vice versa. So that's a very clear example of what a contract is. Another example would be you take a prescription bottle and you read the label, and you really trust that whatever that label says is what's in the bottle. So it's, that's a very strong relationship with language. Money is yet another uh, example of this contract that we enter into with signs and symbols and text, right? The value of a $5 bill is not the paper itself, but the words $5 bill, legal tender, right? Right. So these are the kinds of contracts and the trust that we place in these narratives that the book is here to hopefully contest or make us think about a little bit.
1: You know, the third document, A Memoir Remembered by Ida Partenza, you know, through her perspective, more information about the first two documents are revealed and explained. So I'm wondering, now we are seeing it, the lens is a... a, female lens. Can you talk to me about assuming her lens and writing her story?
0: This third book was the hardest for me to write and the one I edited the most and the one I kept going back to even, you know, at the proof stage where you are supposed just to be, you know, looking for errors. I was I was still fiddling with style, only with her. Ida, again, comes in the second half of the book, and she is the daughter of an Italian anarchist, an immigrant who lives here in Brooklyn, uh, who feels very passionately, uh, you know, against the whole Wall Street world and is sort of dismayed when he learns that his daughter is now part of that world as a secretary, right? Again, as I was saying at the beginning of her conversation, she's looking back on those years from, you know, her older age. And... She's a very successful writer by then, you know, very well-respected. She's even turning down offers from The New Yorker. You know, she she she's an established voice. And I imagine that she would have risen to that place during the years of sort of new journalism. So that's mostly what I read. I think I read almost all of Joan Didion while writing this. I, I had read a bunch of her work before, and uh, and she sadly died recently before the book came out it was you know I was I was I was really really sad about that she's she's a massive presence in my literary life I'd never met her but so and Lillian Ross and you know women from that era and it's not a writing style that is that's not how I write naturally. I admire it, but it's like not the writer I am. So I had to, (laughs) I had to teach myself how to write like Ida, uh, you know, and that, that was uh, pretty hard. I actually have, um, I made style guides for each one of the four sections with, you know, punctuation, uh, 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 sort of lexical choices and so on and so forth. How each one of these people, right? And, you know, I sent them to the, my translators now who are very happy to, to have that. It was, a, it was a very useful tool.
1: You know, there was one part in this section, um, in this third document that I found, you know, just quite thought-provoking. And Ida is recalling a discussion that she had with her father about how they both ended up working with type. And he is a typesetter and she is a typist. And she told him that she had come to experience time differently. And this quote, the word I was typing was always in the past, while the word I was thinking of was always in the future, which left the present oddly uninhabited. And he told her that the biggest influence of his work in his life was that he had been taught to see the world backward. And, you know, that was just one paragraph that left me awestruck. My poor book is marked up and dog-eared, you know, end to end. How are you not exhausted (laughs) from all of this? Because I am.
0: (laughs) Exhausted from what, sorry?
1: (laughs) It was just like so thought-provoking throughout I was just constantly underlining thinking I don't have a oh, question here but I love this so much so I could just <laughs> underline it
0: <laughs> this is this is the, the 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 dream of every writer I think just to hear this I don't have questions I just underlined the whole thing Oh, I'm, this warms my heart so much thank you well,
1: I do have a question from that section Good. because Ida read many texts for her research, and commented that Henry Adams' education was the only of the books by great men that she enjoyed, and I, I think I noted that comment because that book has been on my stack for a while to read. So I'm wondering, do you share the same opinion with Ida? Is it the only one that you enjoyed? <laughs> well,
0: to 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 a certain extent, yes. I mean, it's it's like it's a tough field, the one that she is in. There's a lot of tedious self-aggrandizing, exhausting books in her reading list, and I I read them all myself, you know, to write this book. I I focused mostly on autobiographies written by great men. I use the word men uh, with great deliberation, (laughs) written by great men uh, in America up to sort of the late 30s. I think I started with Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, which... Weirdly enough, was a, a favorite of Franz Kafka, if you can believe that. I, I makes zero sense to me, but makes me li- like Kafka even more. I think he even gave it to his father. Um, anyway, that was that was a, 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 an unnecessary detour, um, and it, I went and it, I went all the way up to you know Calvin Coolidge, uh, uh, Hoover, and I stopped there because it would have been anachronistic to go further. The shocking thing, and I give Ida this line, I believe, in this book, is the absolute certainty that you find in these books by these men, that their lives were blameless, faultless. They were exemplary, and their absolute lack of hesitation about the fact that their stories have to be heard. This was striking to me the the sense of entitlement that came with that that you know that their that their flawless lives had to be heard you know that that narrative had to be heard by by everyone and what Ida does there and this is also in the book because I you know I kind of included my research process I gave it all to Ida you know uh, so a lot of the things that you read there of her work at libraries and all of that is the work I was Indeed, doing in real life, and um, one of my favorite novels is Frankenstein. It has been for a long time, uh, Mary Shelley, and so Ida comes to the conclusion that you know she will work with these texts a little bit, like uh, you know Victor Frankenstein w- worked with body parts and create this kind of monster <laughs> out of out of all of these uh, you know uh, bloated uh, uh,
1: male voices. You know, these men, they felt like they had to be heard. But, you know, in the last section of the book, I want to talk to you about Mildred's opportunity to be heard and to have a voice. And I have this quote, some journals are kept with the unspoken hope that they will be discovered long after the diarist's death. So talk to me about that last section, about writing it, and about just giving her a voice
0: beneath the the history of all these great men again always in air quotes um there is a multitude of voices that have been silenced and predominantly these are voices of women there are no women in these narratives of wealth zero none i'm not exaggerating uh maybe they're there as wives that that's that's all uh so it's, it's a crucial concern in the book was to rediscover these voices, you know, and I, and I did archival work to that effect. I looked at the intimate personal papers of wives of several American tycoons, papers nobody had looked at in over a century, which is in itself heartbreaking, you know, still to this day, these voices are neglected, you know, (laughs) writing Mildred's journal at the end, that's the very final section, was very challenging. I wanted for it to be very intimate. I wanted for her intelligence to shine. I also wanted her to have a big heart, but make it clear at all times that she wasn't a victim because uh, this is also a pre-assigned gender role. You know, the woman as a victim in these novels and in these stories. And at all times, I wanted to steer clear of that. And the end result, it was, I, weirdly, I feel very exposed in that, in that section as a, as a, as a a writer. Uh, It's, um, again, it's a very personal section. And um, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a challenge to write. And it's very different from the rest of the book. It's a bit of a prose poem. It's entirely different.
1: You know, I want to talk about, you know, some of the events that took place in these documents. They primarily took place in the early 1900s. But you know, so much of the history you wrote about felt timely, especially, you know, regarding the worlds of finance and immigration and such. Yeah, it just made me think, are we doomed to repeat history no matter how much we learn about it?
0: Oh, that's, this is a great question. Um, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we're repeating, honestly. I think we're still part of, it's, it's the same historical vector. We haven't changed direction enough to be repeating. Right. If this distinction makes sense, because if you look at the 1920s and the 2020s, you know, it was shocking as I was writing this book, how each one of these periods mirrored the other. Um, There was the 1924, I believe, Immigration Act that restricted immigration from certain countries, especially Italy and Asia, Asia, obviously not a country, but um, And meanwhile, here, you know, there were travel bans, children were being separated from their parents at the border, you know, all that horror of that time. And the president speaking about certain countries that were inferior to others, you know. So that's one parallel. Then the extreme sort of deregulation of financial markets. It was also the time, as I was writing this, it was that big, Tax cut for uh, the wealthy that Congress enacted during the Trump administration, and in the '20s during Coolidge, disastrous precedent uh, to my mind. The very same thing happened. Sort of during the Harding-Coolidge years, taxes went down from something like seventy percent to like twenty percent, sort of fifty percent down. The list goes on and on and on. Let's remember Harding ran under the; uh, his campaign slogan was America First does it sound familiar to you? So I think there is a great continuity in that regard. And I think the bridge between the 1920s and the 2020s is the 1980s. And sort of in economics, you have Milton Friedman, the Chicago School, and, you know, Ronald Reagan in office. So I I think we're still riding on that kind of ideological wave. And I don't think that wave is called conservatism for nothing. It is conservative. It has been the same playbook for a hundred years.
1: I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I read, I believe it was in, (laughs) I I know.
0: Sorry, I got a little ranty there.
1: No, that's, that's perfectly fine. I'm glad you mentioned all of the things because I had underlined like the the Immigration Act and I had underlined America First. And I mean, you touched on every single thing that I was thinking of. So no, that's perfect. Um, But this is just a complete switching gears. And I read, I believe it was in a Lithub interview that when finishing this book you would walk from Brooklyn to Bryant Park to an empty New York <laughs> Public Library to which you had access because you had a fellowship, is that right? I was wondering if you could talk to me about that time and experience, because in the article you said something about how many writing problems could be fixed by a long walk.
0: Yes, so I got this uh, fellowship at the New York Public Library, it's called a Coleman Fellowship for Scholars and Writers, and it's wonderful you get an office at the library and you get to work with curators and librarians and uh, you get access to their entire collection. Uh, but this is at the height of the pandemic. Remember when we wore sort of homemade hazmat suits to the supermarket and we would quarantine our mail and you know, and, and, and rightly so, we didn't know what we were dealing with. I'm not, you know, it was, it was, it was super scary. And uh, so the subways were also a bit scary and they recommended you did not get on them. So I would walk it's like a six mile walk from my home to the library and some days I would, this is not a figure of speech, I would be there alone. No staff, there would just be a a few security guards, but there was nobody there. And, you know wealth has a way of monumentalizing itself in new york city you know you can you can see its fingerprint everywhere you know walking through town and the new york public library is i mean that this would be a long conversation but it's you know it's the result of uh, 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 philanthropic efforts by by many of the names that appear in my book so it was very unique to be there alone And 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 reflect on these things, and and I think sort of there there was a spectral quality to it all, you know, a slightly sort of apocalyptic vibe that that also seeped into the book. I think
1: we have talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked?
0: I think I think I think you did a great job, right? I think we mentioned (laughs) like the form of the book. We mentioned uh, history, the, the 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 role of women in that history. I think. I think those are my main points that I want to uh yeah. Thank you for reading the book so passionately and so oh, closely. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: There's, a, there's yeah. one quote. I, I believe this came from the Bonds section. Okay. She was particularly interested in living authors, although she initially refused to meet them, knowing the distance between the work and the person could be covered only by disappointment. This was absolutely not a disappointment. It was such a pleasure.
0: You are too kind.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for visiting with us today.
0: The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you so much for <laughs> having me.
1: That was Ernon Diaz, author of the novel, Trust, which was published by Riverhead. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.